up and lead us in worship today. Yeah. Yes. That's right. That's right. Well, hey, we've been feasting already on this good news of the gospel, this good news of what's in store for those of us who belong to Christ because of what he did for us on that cross, because of that empty tomb. Are anybody ready for some more, though? Yeah, let's do it. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Hey, all around the world, I left my uh, clicker there, actually, at my seat. Um, All around the world, people are, thank you, babe. People are trying to find their way to God. They're trying to find, uh, follow good advice to get there. Uh, whether it's the good advice of uh, good advice of Muhammad or of Buddha or of Oprah Winfrey or Kanye West, whoever's good advice it is, they're seeing God as someone that we humans are trying to reach. And they're looking for some sort of advice, some sort of guide to help them get to that God or to that ultimate reality that they seek. But there's a difference between good advice and good news, right? There's a difference. And uh, pastor, British pastor, generation or two ago, Martin Lloyd-Jones laid this out, that all the religions, all the great faith systems on earth, they all offer good advice, except for one that offers good news. All the great religions, faith systems on earth, they all tell you what you can do to get to God or to some version of ultimate reality, except for one that tells you about what God has done to get to you. All the great faith systems on earth, because they are fundamentally good advice, they call us, first and foremost, to action, except for one. That because it's news, calls us instead to celebration. There's a difference between good advice and good news, and that distinction is going to be critical for us to understand what's going on in our text today. Would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 if you haven't already? 1 Peter chapter 1. Just a review. We started 1 Peter last week. Just a review of what we were talking about there. It's this letter is written by a guy named Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, one of his followers. He's writing to a group of Christians who are just starting to suffer for being Christians. They're living this existence uh, of exiles in terms of this world isn't their home, and they're starting to feel that this world isn't their home. They're starting to be pushed to the margins in society by people who uh, have some questions about these Christians and the strange things that they believe and the strange practices that they have. And so last week, we just took a look at the first two verses of this letter, and we saw there that Peter frames the letter by writing to these people and calling them elect exiles in his term. Elect exiles. Exiles because this world's not their home. Elect because they were chosen just for this. So now we're ready to move on to the big, first big chunk of text starting in verse 3. But right there in verse 3 is where this distinction between advice and news becomes so important. Here's why. 
if Christianity was just good advice, then we might expect verse 3, the body of the letter, to launch into, hey, you're elect exiles on earth, therefore, here's an eightfold path to follow, or here are five pillars to follow, here are seven tips to live in an exile moment, right? But that's not what we get. We don't get good advice starting in verse 3. Instead, we get a call not to action, but to celebration. And so a thoughtful reader, when you read that in verse 3, see it? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He bursts out in praise. A thoughtful reader then says, why is there an invitation to celebrate here instead of a call to act? And the answer is because Christianity is not fundamentally good advice. It's fundamentally good news. Before it ever calls us to action, it calls us to celebration. So we're going to read through this text as we go. It's, we're going to look at verses 3 through 12. But I just, before we do, I just want to show you the structure so we understand what's going on so that I can lay out what the big idea of this text is. Verses 3 through 12 start with this outcry of praise from Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we wonder, well, why is he breaking into praise at this moment? The reason is because he's thinking about the good news that he's about to lay out in all of the next 9 or 10 verses. For that reason, our big idea is going to focus right here because that's the big idea of Peter's writing is this outburst of praise. And so we're going to say it like this. Let's drink in the good news, the good news that he lays out all in here. Let's drink in that good news until it wells up in joyful praise. It seems like that's what was happening for Peter even as he was writing this down. And it's the response that by the Holy Spirit he's trying to produce in his readers that we would drink in the good news until it wells up in joyful praise within us. If we're aiming to drink in that good news, there's three facets of it we're going to see in this text. Uh, there's an insert in your bulletin that has this outline, but we're going to see the good news is living hope. It offers hope despite trial. And the good news of foretold hope has now been realized. Let's jump in with verses 3 through 5, where we're going to see that the good news is living hope. We'll spend the majority of our time here just in these first three verses of the text. Would you follow along with me as I read? And look for that, that the good news is living hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who? by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Remember, this first clause of praise governs the whole section. Why? Because Peter's reflecting on good news. So let's go there into that good news now, to the good news of salvation. Verse 3 starts out, uh, the, the salvation part of verse 3 starts out with two words, according to. We might stop right there and just ask what we'd expect to come next. If he's about to start talking about salvation, what would we expect him to say? Maybe, maybe we expect him to say, um, according to the good deeds you've done. Or we might expect him to say, uh, according to your usefulness for the kingdom of God. Something of the sort. Instead, he says something different. He says that our salvation is according to his great mercy. His great mercy. 
were saved in accordance with that. In other words, our salvation was an undeserved free choice of God's, not because of anything we had done, not because of anything that he foresaw that we would do, but rather just because he is a God who's merciful. Then Peter uses a metaphor for that decisive moment of salvation. Do you see the metaphor he uses? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. It's the metaphor of new birth. Jesus uses that metaphor. So does John. Uh, Why birth? Because there are similarities between what happens when we come to faith in Christ and our first birth, our physical birth, our passing through the birth canal. Why is it called the new birth? Because there are some differences as well. Let's start with the similarities. I think there are at least two that I can think of. Two similarities between our first birth and our second birth. One of them has to do with um, the causation and the other has to do with identity. So first, causation. Raise your hand if you had a say in being born the first time. Anybody have a say? Yeah, I didn't either. We, we don't really have much of a say in that. Um, and by the way, forgive me if you see me start to sweat as we talk about birth because we've got a birth coming this week that I'm preparing myself for mentally. Um, we don't have much of a say in our first birth, and I wonder if there's some sort of spiritual reality there that makes this such an apt metaphor. Um, here's what I mean by that. You see how Peter frames it? He says, according to his great mercy, he has not just we've been born again, he has caused us to be born again. Here's the connection I'm seeing. First birth, second birth. The first birth, we didn't cause our first birth. Our parents caused it. Second birth, similarly, we didn't cause our second birth. First and foremost, our Heavenly Father caused it. He caused us, according to Peter, to be born again. So causation is a commonality between our first and second birth. We're not saying that there, we didn't have any element of choice, of course, in coming to faith in Christ. Of course, we did choose faith in Christ in that moment. When it's certainly from our experience we chose him. But Peter's taking us to a God's eye view and saying that ultimately, whatever choice we had in the matter, it was ultimately God's choice. It was ultimately him who caused us to be born again. There's causation. Identity is another one. Another connection between the first and second birth, why it's such an apt metaphor. Um, Maybe we could think about it this way. Today, there will be a baby born on the North Shore. There will be another baby born in Lithuania, right? Those two babies, their identities, before they ever even take a breath, before they even make a choice in this world, will be very different just based on the family that they were born into. So, their ethnic identity their citizenship, their socioeconomic class, uh, the abilities that they have. They will have inherited those from their parents in their first birth by no say of their own. Maybe similarly, there's something similar in the second birth. Um, Just as the first birth shaped our identity so profoundly, I might even say from 1 Peter, we might say that the second birth shapes, reshapes our identity even more profoundly because in the second birth, We've been born not into any human family, but born into the family of God, the king of the universe, the one who runs everything. And we get all of the status, all of the privileges, all the benefits, all the inheritance we're going to see that comes with being a member of the king of the universe's family. There's similarities, causation, identity, but I think there's differences too between the first birth and the second birth. That's why it's called the new birth. And I think we see some of that in the next phrase 
in 1 Peter chapter 1. He's caused us to be born again, okay, to what? To a living hope. That's a difference between our first birth and our second birth. Our first birth, we were not born into a living hope. Instead, we were born into suffering. We were born into tragedy. Born into a world of pain. We were born into a world in which there would be a 100% chance that we would one day die. Conversely, with the second birth, uh, we weren't born to die. It's, a, it's not that case. There's still suffering and pain that exists, of course, but the life that began at our second birth will far, far, far outlive all the suffering and pain that we experience during this life. And so, our second birth, our second life, has an eye toward the future eternal life. And our first, as, whereas our first birth had only, uh, was only overshadowed by the specter of certain death. It gets better, though. How did God bring about this new birth? We're continuing on in verse 3. He caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So somehow, the resurrection of Jesus and our rebirth, our spiritual birth, are connected in Peter's mind. But what exactly is the connection? Um, We might uh, think about it with using this question that might be helpful. What is the greatest killer of hope? Anybody have an idea? What is the thing that most kills hope? I think it's, I think it's death, right? Because hope can persist until a person's gone, right? Until that person dies. And so um, we see here, in this conversation about living hope and the connection between Jesus' resurrection from the dead, that if we have a reason to believe that there's life beyond death, now I can have hope that is real and living, right? It can actually be called a living hope because I can believe that life beyond death is possible. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead is what provides that hope for us, that life beyond death is possible. And so the New Testament talks about our hope that we have in him as not only a living hope but a certain hope that after the grave, that we will be with him. If we've been united to him, if anybody was in Eric's class in the gym this morning, you heard about that, that union with Christ. If we are united to Christ in faith, then our wagon gets hitched to his, so to speak, in such a way that as he was buried in the grave, we're buried in the waters of baptism. As, we're, as he was raised to new life in his resurrection, we are raised to new life in the new birth. And even the New Testament goes so far as to say that as he's seated at the right hand of God the Father now, we, spiritually speaking, are seated at the Father's right hand right now as we speak. Um, I want to take a time out here. If anybody's hearing, I wonder if anybody's hearing this good news for the first time this morning. Or maybe you haven't heard this good news laid out quite like this before. And it feels a little bit overwhelming to you. Um, because it's so different from the good advice that you're used to hearing. Good news is so different from good advice. It can come with a little bit of shock, and I just want to just stop right here before we go any further and say uh, that you're in the right place. That many of us have been right in that moment where we realized that the good advice we were trying to follow to climb our way to God was not the good news. (laughs) The good news is that God has made his way to come to us and bring us to be with him forever. 
And there's more of that coming. If it wasn't great enough already, this living hope, because it offers life beyond the grave, there's more good news in verse 4. Look with me at verse 4. This living hope is of a life that brings us into an inheritance. Do you see that there? An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. There's an inheritance involved. Now, we said last week that Peter is writing both to Jewish believers in Jesus and to Gentile believers in Jesus. Those among his readers who were Jewish would have immediately read this word inheritance and thought of what? What was the inheritance in the Old Testament? The promised land. That's where their minds would have gone. They would have thought about the promised land, that inheritance. But Peter is making a pretty shocking claim here that whereas the promised land perished, it was defiled, it faded even to the point at which God's people were removed from it, this new inheritance that we have as a result of the new birth into a living hope, it's different. You see what he said about it? It's imperishable. It won't spoil. It won't be lost. And as readers might be thinking, what, what I was thinking when I first read this, how could it be that it wouldn't be lost? Are, are, are we believers today that much better than those believers in the Old Testament that we won't defile our inheritance and it won't be lost? No, that's not it. It won't be lost because of what Peter says right here at the end of verse 4, the last phrase. It's kept in heaven for you. This new inheritance of living hope, it's kept in heaven for you. And it's kept by a God who won't let it be taken away, who won't let it spoil or be defiled or fade. So why does this matter for you and for me? Uh, Dr. Campbell from Trinity came here last fall and taught a class in the gym. Maybe you heard this analogy. This is the first time I heard it. I thought it was really good. Here's why it matters for us, this inheritance. Imagine, he said... Imagine if at the age of 12, you were told that at the age of 21, you were going to inherit a billion dollars, billion with a B, okay? Would that shape your life between the ages of 12 and 21, the knowledge that you were going to inherit a billion dollars at 21? Of course it would, right? There wouldn't be a day that went by where you wouldn't think about it. It would affect where you went to college, what major you picked when you went to college. It would pick... Uh, it would affect how you carried yourself about your day. It would affect almost every choice that you made. Right? How much more should the knowledge of our coming inheritance affect our experience here as exiles on this earth? Should it not? Because the inheritance that's coming for us is even greater than any inheritance, including a billion-dollar inheritance, because even the billion-dollar inheritance at best is with us for 50 or 70 years, but then for the whole rest of our eternal existence, we don't have it anymore. Conversely, the inheritance we have in Christ, this living hope of life with him, we will have for all of eternity, and so it's even more valuable. And so it ought to affect our lives here and now. We need to look at verse 5, though, before we close off this section, because there's something pretty, uh, pretty fascinating there. What I'm seeing there in verse 5 is that not only is this inheritance kept for us in heaven, but God is guarding or keeping us for the inheritance. The inheritance is being kept or guarded for us. We are being kept or guarded for the inheritance. You see that there in verse 5? By God's power, we are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed 
in the last time. Question. This guarding. Is it like the Secret Service guarding the president from being attacked? Or is it like uh, the prison warden guarding El Chapo from escaping from prison? You know what I mean? Is it a guard from external attack or is it a guard internally from escape? In short, the answer is yes. It's both that that word that's translated guarded encompasses both ideas. And doesn't God do the same for us, both of those for us, right? On one hand, he guards us from attack. We have an enemy called the devil who is constantly scheming to try to steal, kill, and destroy. And our God is guarding us, protecting us in the faith so that we can't be pulled aside by the devil's schemes. Also, our own sinful flesh has the propensity that we are prone to wander. If we was left to our own devices, we would, every one of us, run away from God, even after we came to salvation in him. However, our God, according to Peter, is guarding us through faith for the salvation that we'll receive, will be revealed in that last time. Our God is guarding us. Now, a really good guard or night watchman is really good at the job because he's ready to take a bullet, even, if needed, for what he's guarding. Is our God really willing to go to that, those great lengths to guard us in our faith for the salvation that's being kept for us on that final day? He is. And actually, he already has. It's exactly what he did on the cross. When Jesus Christ hung there on that cross... When Satan came for you and for me and made a claim over us and said, it's time for me to take that one. It's time for me to take that, Tim Higgins, Satan said, because God, you know that he has spit in your face. You pursued him and he rejected you. He is deserving of nothing. Tim is deserving of nothing but your wrath. It's time for me to claim him as my own. And Jesus looked back at Satan as he hung there on that cross and said, you're right about Tim in everything that you said, except that I'll die before I allow you to take him. That's the love of our Savior. He guards us for the inheritance that's coming. Well, hey, we've just been able to skim verses 3 through 5, just at the very surface level. I want to just, before we go on to the second point, talk about what all of this has to do with Peter's readers and us in this time of exile, as we find ourselves increasingly pushed to the margins in society. I don't know about you. I find these to be life-giving words in a time of exile. Here's why. Um, Even, it tells me that even if the world relegates us to a despised place, what's truest is that the God of the universe has lifted me up to the highest place to the most lofty status and station, the most privileged position, not because I earned it, but just because he's mercifully granted us, granted it to us. <clears throat> when I compare that good news of what God has done for me freely in Christ, just because of his own mercy, to the good advice that the world offers to someone in exile, which is just something along the self-esteem lines of, you're not as bad as what people say about you. There's no comparison in my mind. 
This good news is life that I want to drink in deeply. The good news that says you are actually every bit as bad as what the world says about you and worse because they don't know the half of it. However, you're more deeply loved than you ever could have dared dream. So good news is living hope. The last two points will be a lot more brief. Second, the good news offers hope despite trial. That's what we'll see in verses 6 through 9. Would you look for that with me as we read verses 6 through 9? Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We're going to see in this letter, First Peter, that Peter's going to talk about suffering a lot. Uh, he's going to keep coming back to it. Here, though, what's unique about this particular discussion of suffering in the letter of First Peter, um, it's more general. It's not just limited to the specifically Christian sort of suffering that happens because you're a Christian. You see what he says, how he says it there in verse 6, various trials, right? It's general. So this could be um, the family member who passed. This could be the diagnosis that you weren't expecting. Or it could be the kind of suffering that happens as a result of being a Christian. In any of it, the message here in verses 6 through 9 is that we rejoice in all of it because all of it is actually designed to purify us. You see that purification language in verse 6 and then into verse 7, the analogy that ends up getting used in verse 7 uh, for purification of our faith is that it's like gold. A Christian going through trial is like gold passing through a fire. There's nothing they could have imagined in this day more precious than gold except gold that has passed through fire because as it's passed through the fire, it gets refined and it becomes even more valuable, more precious. Peter's saying it's the same with us except that our faith is even greater even worth more, even more precious than gold. Why? He tells us. Gold, even the sort of gold that's tested by fire and purified, it perishes. You see that in verse 7? Our faith won't if it passes through the fire and passes the test. Now, let's take that to real life. You say, that's great. My suffering, the hard things that I'm going through is purifying my faith Cool. But I'm a 16-year-old girl, for example, and what hope does that offer me when no boys will talk to me because I'm living out my Christian faith? It's an important question. Many of us have wrestled with a similar question along the way, and actually, to me, that's why these last few words of verse 7 are so powerful. Here's, here's what he says. he says. He talks about praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Praise and glory and honor. Why is that meaningful to someone going through an actual, real-life, hard situation? Because of who that praise and honor and glory is coming to. Is it coming to Jesus? Well, surely Jesus will receive praise and glory and honor at the end. However, I don't actually think that's what Peter's talking about here. Throughout this letter, we're going to see, and throughout the New Testament, we see that Besides our Lord Jesus receiving praise and glory and honor at the end when he's revealed, we, his people, 
also are the recipients of praise and glory and honor. So here's why I think that's good news. If we have been um, mocked at our school, if we've been mocked at our job for our Christian faith, isn't it great news to hear that we will one day be praised? Praised by the God of the universe when we stand before him and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Whose praise could ever matter more? Uh, praise, honor, glory. What, what, what about honor? When, when, when you're the one who's been, or glory, when you're the one who's been overlooked your whole life. When you're the one that nobody pays attention to. And you could be getting attention if you lived like other people were living, but instead you're living out your Christian faith, so you're not getting that attention. What, isn't it good news to hear that one day glory will be yours? Glory meaning that all the creatures uh, that God has made will look at you in your glorified state and be amazed and want to be tempted to worship you because of what they see. That's coming one day for you. Honor, glory, praise. It's coming our way, actually, in addition to it going to Christ on that last day when he's revealed. And that's good news. Uh, I hope you're seeing here in verses 6 through 9 that the normal Christian life involves a heavy mixture of both praise uh, or, or both grief and joy. Both, sometimes simultaneously. Right? Sometimes that grief and joy is side by side. Actually, that's the ordinary shape of the Christian life. And Christians over the centuries who have flourished on the margins in society in times of exile, they have been the sort from whom we get some of our most Lofty praise choruses are our, our, our greatest times of rejoicing, even in the midst of some of the deepest, worst suffering. Why? How were they able to rejoice so much, even in times of suffering? Um, I think they rejoiced, and they were able to find that because of what we see in verse 9. In verse 9, we see, yes, they, we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Why? Because we're obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. So I think about our African-American sisters and brothers who wrote the great Negro spirituals, a few of which we're going to try to pepper throughout our services this fall. They were experiencing life in exile, and actually it was a kind of a double exile. They're exiled from the world as Christians, but also exiled from some of their Christian brothers and sisters, unfortunately and tragically, um, because of the color of their skin or because of their status as slaves. Out of that place of exile, out of that place of deep anguish, comes these songs that are filled with deep lament and sorrow, but also, simultaneously, some of the loftiest, greatest rejoicing. Because... Verse 9, they're looking ahead to obtaining the outcome of their faith, the salvation of their souls. In other words, the dear saints, sisters and brothers who have been faithful on the margins over the years, though they've been wronged and marginalized by society, their focus has been, or they haven't been most appalled at the sin of the world around them that is mistreating them. They've been most appalled at the sin inside themselves that leads them to praise that I think God would receive them. In other words, they haven't seen themselves first and foremost as victims of undeserved suffering, but rather as recipients of undeserved grace. The good news is living hope. The good news offers hope despite trial. And finally, the good news of foretold hope has now been realized. We'll only have a brief moment to take a look at verses 10 to 12. wish it could be a sermon in and of itself, but it's a foretold hope that has now been realized. Would you look for that? 
as we read it together. Starting in verse 10, Peter says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let me ask a question. If you could trade places with Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel, King David, one of the prophets who foretold about Jesus before he came, these people who had intimate relationships with God along the way as they served as his mouthpieces, would you trade places with them? Another question. Those angels that serve before the throne of God day and night, who haven't experienced a human existence but get to be by God's side for all of eternity future, would you trade places with one of those angels? Peter, here in verses 10 through 12, suggests something surprising, that actually those prophets of old and those angels, they might actually consider treating places with you. They might want your spot. Take a look at it. At the end of verse 12, these angels are trying to peek over the fence, we might say, so to speak, at the end of verse 12. They're, trying to, they're longing to look into these things that we've been exploring in salvation because they're able to see it as outsiders, whereas we get to see it as those who have experienced the salvation personally and get to experience it for our own. Uh, similarly, the prophets are up on tiptoe in verse 10, trying to look ahead. They couldn't quite see it. They, they are trying to piece it together. They're searching the scriptures. They're searching their own writings. They're trying to piece together who is the coming Messiah. When is he coming? How does it all piece together? How do the puzzle pieces all fit? They're working so hard to find it. They couldn't quite get the full picture, Peter says. We, on the other hand, living on this side of Christ in his death and resurrection, we get the full picture. We have the great privilege of getting to see it. And so these writers who wrote in the Old Testament times were ultimately writing for us, according to Peter. In verse 12, since we're living on this side of the cross in the tomb, we can capture all the, we can understand all the layers of what they were saying, whereas they themselves couldn't even understand all the layers when they wrote it. For that reason, that means from start to finish, from the prophets to Jesus to us, this story has all been unfolding, not by accident, but according to the plan of the God who is orchestrating it all. And if that's true, that must include our suffering too. If it's all been unfolding according to plan, that must include our suffering too. So as we find ourselves in a time of exile, I wonder, does it encourage your heart like it encourages mine to know that I don't find myself experiencing any kind of suffering that isn't exactly what God had planned for me? That's the implication of the fact that this good news of foretold hope has been realized by a God who's orchestrating the whole plan from start to finish. So remember, our big idea is this. Let's drink in the good news until it wells up in joyful praise. We began by talking about this contrast between good advice and good news. Advice versus news. Uh, All the religions on earth are giving advice, how to get to God, how to get to what you want, how to get to ultimate reality or heaven. 
Only Christianity offers good news of what God has done to get to you. We've spent the last 30 minutes trying to drink in it until it starts to well up in us in joyful praise, but I just want to offer one last piece that maybe can tie some of this together. The contrast between advice and praise is maybe nowhere seen more clearly than just after a battle. Just after a battle has been fought. Here's what I mean. You're at home in your city. Your fellow countrymen have gone off to war, gone off to fight. The battle has been fought. Somebody's going to come back from that battle either with good advice or good news. If you lost the battle, they're going to come back with advice, like maybe run for your lives. If you won the battle, they're going to come back with news, and the appropriate response to that news won't be action, but rather celebration. And friends, the battle of all battles has been fought, and it has been won. It has been won by our Lord Jesus Christ when he took the punishment we deserved on our behalf, when he defeated Satan, and when he defeated that last enemy, death, by rising up out of his grave. Because he has won the battle, because he's fought and won, our God hasn't sent us military advisors to give us good advice. He has sent us messengers to give us good news. And because it's good news that he's sent and not good advice, the proper response is celebration. It's the greatest news that any of us could have ever dreamed or imagined. We couldn't have dreamed it up if we would have thought of it spent our whole lives trying to think of a greater story. So hey, after reflecting together like we have on this good news in this text, um, should we spend a few moments, maybe an extended time of worship here at the end of our service? Anybody else want to do that? Want to spend some time praising our God together? Let's do that. Band, come on up and I'll pray for us and we'll, we'll spend some time singing wholeheartedly, full-throatedly, if that's a word, to our God. Lord, We're grateful for your gospel. I'm I'm grateful for your gospel. That even though I've spit in your face so many times, both before and after finding out about what you had done for me on that cross, you nevertheless pursued me, your enemy, extended your love to me, and have kept me in your love even when you could have let me run away the many, many times I tried to run away from you. Thank you for your guarding protecting love that keeps us in the faith just as that same gospel saved us in the first place. Lord, help us to be so gripped by that. Help it to so penetrate into our hearts. Help that good news to be so prominent in our minds and in our hearts and in our actions that it can't help but well out of us in what we think and what we say and what we do. And Lord, as we sing to you uh, in these next moments, Help our singing to be coming out of a place of genuine, joyful, glad praise from the depths of our soul for what you've done for us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.